Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. So guys, based on the events of the past, oh, 24, maybe even 12 hours, would we call this the beginning of the end times or the end of the beginning times? I think we would call it... It's like a William Butler Yeats kind of moment. That's very poetic. It just looks like a big, stupid blip where we're like, that was dumb. This whole thing was dumb. And that it looks smaller and smaller the further we get away from it. I'm not Mm. optimistic that will be the case, but that's my hope. Well, I think that this is a really troubling indicator of where we are. But I also think that in some ways, this is just the start of something far worse. It also occurs to me, we have specifically pointed to what the this is, and there are about 18 things right now. Yeah, I just want to say you're all a bunch of Debbie Downers. I'm elated. (laughs) Like Warnock and Ossoff won Georgia. We got Merrick Garland appointed. So some people want to have a riot and have a- Storm the Capitol. Like storm the Capitol. Chill out. (laughs) It'll be fine. All is well. Hello and welcome to Rational Security, the peaceless transition of power edition. I'm Shane Harris. I am barricaded in a studio. Are you feeling peaceful? No. I'm I'm feeling very peaceable, but our city is really not peaceful. I'm feeling peace-loving, but I feel like the people down the street maybe not so much. I'm lying in my hammock watching the coup on TV. Oh, God. Yeah, you and, Amer- and the rest of America, man. Uh, there's some gallows humor here today. Uh, I am here in the remote jungle studio with my good friends, Ben Wittes, Tamara Kaufman Wittes, and Susan Hennessy. Hi, everybody. Hi. Hi, Shane. Hi, Shane. It's an eventful day. It's a very eventful day. We're going to talk about as much of it as we can um, while we're still on the air. Uh, on the podcast this week, a normally procedural session of Congress dissolves into a dead-ender drama as protesters descend on Washington, threatening violence. A new crackdown on pro-democracy forces in Hong Kong will complicate the incoming Biden administration's approach to China. And how will a barely Democrat-controlled Senate affect Joe Biden's national security agenda? All right. So we're going to start with, I guess, kind of some breaking news. Um, Susan, we're going to begin with you in part because uh, you uh, right now are fairly close to the scene of the action uh, or the chaos. Uh, As I'm sitting here, we're recording the podcast around a quarter to three on Wednesday afternoon. uh, And there are live images streaming in of what look to be hundreds, possibly thousands of uh, pro-Trump protesters who have literally descended onto the Capitol. They have apparently breached the outer perimeter and are roaming about inside the Capitol building while Congress is in a joint session being presided over by Vice President Mike Pence in his capacity as the Senate to open a bunch of boxes and count a bunch of votes that were already certified by the Electoral College. 
Greatest democracy in the world, people. Totally. It's just doing great. These are extraordinary images. I think, safe to say, none of us have ever seen anything like this. I'm not sure anyone in their lifetimes have seen anything quite like this. Uh, and we can't tell you as we're recording right now how this is going to play out. But we, Susan, I want to give you a chance just to talk a little bit about, because you're kind of down there near there, um, kind of what you're seeing and hearing and uh, and what you're feeling. Yeah, so, um, you know, we live in Capitol Hill and um, are reasonably close to where all of this is happening without being overly specific about things. Um, This is scary. You know, I don't feel in any immediate danger on our block right now, but um, our neighbors a few blocks away, some private residences are reportedly being evacuated. Um, There are sirens everywhere. I've never heard anything like this. There are weird, loud noises that I I don't know if they're sort of sound, you know, people clearing concussion style grenade explosions or something else or gunshots, right? It's, it's, um, It's hard to know how to evaluate sort of the atmospherics and, you know, watching what's happening in terms of the the actual images sort of on Twitter, you know, look, this might seem like um, an interesting drama unfolding on television. Um, This is a neighborhood and people live here and our kids are here in our house right now. And my husband is like interrupted me to make sure that like all of the doors in all parts of the house have been locked and double locked and we put deadbolts on, um, you know, and uh, we had a mad dash about an hour ago to make sure that our nanny had gotten back inside with our baby. Like, you know, this is scary stuff. Um, it's really scary that somebody is going to get hurt. It's shocking to see this in an American city. It's shocking to see this at the U.S. Capitol. It's just a really scary, upsetting scene. And, you know, we started with some gallows humor. And, um, you know, this morning, whenever we were, I was talking with a friend about, um, you know, sort of how concerned we should be about today. You know, I was sort of joking, you know, whenever they say everybody bring their trauma kits and their their MREs, uh, you know, bring multiples. And I was saying, yeah, like that's a like it's basically a cosplayer saying, like, don't forget to bring a snack, bring your Band-Aids. Like it's a bunch of just stupid idiots. And um, and was sort of laughing about it. Um, it doesn't feel funny right now, not because I actually think this is some legitimate armed insurrection, but because somebody's going to get hurt um, and because nobody anywhere. Um, but but I, I think especially sort of um, American. Americans sitting in Washington, D.C., shouldn't need to be afraid within their homes about whether or not we're going to have a peaceful transition of power. And just I'm angry. I'm like really, really freaking angry right now and angry at Republicans that enabled this and welcomed this. This was the obvious foreseeable result of the president's rhetoric over the past couple of days and weeks and over the past four years. We were always going to come to this place. And so, you know, I'm very sorry that they themselves are in an even more perilous position. Um, The Capitol Police have locked down the Capitol. They are trying to lock down the actual chambers of the House and Senate. They're telling, uh, reportedly telling members of the press and, uh, and, and members of Congress that they might need to be prepared to get underneath their seats. People have breached the Capitol, and we can um, have a separate uh, episode later about um, Capitol security and why they were not apparently more prepared for this moment. Um, We can have a separate conversation later about what this moment might have looked like if it wasn't a bunch of white guys trying to breach the Capitol um, and how different a response um, in terms of force they might have been met with. Um, You know, but but this is an alarming, shocking, really disturbing moment. It's something that um, has implications for, for real 
real people. And the, you know, there's a group of people to blame for this. Um, and uh, first and foremost, they're, they're the hooligans that are, are engaging in this. But beyond that, they are uh, the members of the Republican Party that looked the other way and sat in silence and, you know, perpetuated, uh, you know, this, this absolute nonsense for the past couple of weeks to score some cheap political points. It didn't even work. You didn't even win Georgia. It might have backfired on you. And God help us. You better hope that it doesn't get somebody seriously hurt or killed. And that's the situation we're all in, in which like the last line of defense is for us to lock our doors and sit here and pray and just hope that like nobody gets hurt. And, um, you know, to, to, to try and keep in our thoughts, like the journalists that are at the Capitol right now, their staff, Capitol Police, and by the way, all of their families that are watching this play out on Twitter and thinking like, wow, I really, really hope the person I care about is safe right now and doing this in the middle of a pandemic. It is disgusting. It is appalling. And like, I don't even really have words for it. I don't have political analysis for this. I just have like a pretty real visceral anger right now that um, that, that this could be happening. It's just shocking to me. I I share that anger completely, Susan. And I think that you know, living in D.C. basically my, my entire adult life, I have seen a lot of different kinds of protests in the city. I've seen a lot of clashes between opposing people with opposing views in the city. I've seen the police react in lots of different ways over the years in the city. I've never seen elected officials of the United States government, including the president of the United States, not two hours ago outside the White House inciting people to violence against the police and violence against the institutions of our democratic government, their own elected officials. And that's what's going on. And that's really upsetting. I also have to say, as a D.C. resident, it's really upsetting how fractured the security arrangements are in this city. You know, my phone is now buzzing with an emergency alert. Mayor Bowser issuing a citywide curfew for 6 p.m. tonight, which, you know, our city police can try to enforce. But Mayor Bowser had to request the D.C. National Guard to be mobilized to support our police in controlling these rioters and thugs, which is what they are. And she had to get permission from the Secretary of Defense because we're not a state and she doesn't have the authority that a governor would have to ensure the security of her own citizens. And now that she's imposed a curfew, she's going to have to go back to the Department of Defense and ask them to change the mission set and the rules of engagement for those National Guard troops to help enforce this curfew. And given the level of violence and chaos that we've already seen just in the last 12 hours in the city, we need that. You know, we need it more, frankly, than we needed it in June, a lot more. And so I'm also frustrated from a sort of D.C. statehood perspective. And I, you know, on the one hand, I can appreciate that the Department of Defense learned the lesson of June and is trying really hard not to involve the National Guard and not to deploy them in Humvees on the streets. But gosh, I mean, I wish they would have not done it in June, but be prepared to do it now because the circumstances are entirely, entirely different. All right, Ben, let's talk about what's actually going on inside the Capitol right now. As I said, there is this normally pro forma session where Mike Pence presides over a joint session of the House and the Senate, and they 
certify, I guess, the Electoral College votes. But I mean, basically, they they read them, they accept them. You know, this is a pro forma uh, matter that never gets any kind of attention, of course, now is going to get it because lawmakers are going to object to the results in certain states, which will force potentially many hours uh, of debate on whether or not to to certify these results. It's going to fail. Joe Biden is going to be inaugurated on January 20th. There's not a conceivable political or frankly, I'm not even sure, legal avenue by which Donald Trump would remain in office because of this session. So how do we read this? Is this, you know, the kind of the last gasp of of the Trumpkins and, you know, and and to go with our top of the show, the um, beginning of the end? Or should we read this as just more in a more cynical kind of political way of contenders for the White House in 2024 setting them up? And I'm thinking, obviously, of Senators Hawley and Cruz primarily, and that this is now going to be the litmus test for running as the inheritor you know, to to Trump's torch uh, is do you also believe that the election was illegitimate? And where did you stand, uh, you know, at the Battle of Washington on January 6th? Yes, but I would also suggest that it is a third thing. So first of all, it is both of those. It is the last gasp of the effort to contest this election. The This is the last moment before the actual inauguration of Joe Biden at which something has to happen in order for him to become the person entitled to take the presidential oath of office on January 20th. And so uh, the insurgency, such as it is, has one more chance to, and that's what's what's happening today, to protest, to make its voice heard, to try to interrupt uh, and tinker with or, or reverse somehow the proceedings or stop the proceedings in order to prevent that from happening. So yes, it is that. It is also a great, for that reason, a great opportunity, exactly as you say, for uh, unscrupulous individuals. And by unscrupulous, I mean Ted Cruz and Josh Hawley and uh, other people of low character to, you know, position themselves as the sort of heirs in a political sense, as the heirs of of the Trump thing, whatever it is. But I would submit that there is a third thing going on, which is that it is the coming out party of this openly anti-democratic movement that has an element of street violence, an element of mob, and an element of uh, electoral politics. And their basic position, the unifying position of the people in the chamber and the people who are trying to storm the chamber, is that they don't give a shit how the people voted. Uh, They want to win, and they will delegitimize both in Congress and on the streets. They will uh, do what they have to do, however legal, however inappropriate, however violent, to stymie the will of the majority to the extent that it does not comply with their own will. And I, I think that is like having a day that represents that in which the you know street violence, mob violence, 
coincides and it's not a it's actually coincide is the wrong word because it's not coincidence it's it's coordinated with a sort of parliamentary formality is a kind of a step toward a different kind of political movement and i think so i think you are seeing the birth here of the next sort of open phase of a sort of fascist uh, movement in the United States. So Ben just spoke about the political dimension of this, and I would agree, but I I immediately remembered uh, when he started talking, this piece that was published in the Washington Post last summer, even before the election result, by a history professor at UVA, Carolyn Janney, saying the South's mythology glamorized a noble defeat. Trump backers may do the same. In other words, this is the new lost cause. And that is what clearly what we see on the streets today in these. This isn't just political. It's not just a movement of, you know, a combination of true believers and opportunists. This is a cultural movement as well. And their political beliefs and their political action are driven by that. This is the new lost cause, not only for Southerners, but for aggrieved white people all over the country. And I worry that January 6th is now going to become cemented in their cultural mythology as much as it may be cemented in the cultural mythology of liberal Democrats like me who see this as a day of triumph in which democracy triumphed over, you know, attempts to corrupt it. It's going to have the mirror image on the other side. All right. Let's uh, let's talk about democracy under threat uh, and another place in the world. Big crackdown uh, in Hong Kong. Uh, I'm just read from CNN's most recent reporting on this. Dozens of former lawmakers and opposition activists were arrested Wednesday morning in Hong Kong on suspicion of violating the city's sweeping national security legislation in the biggest crackdown since the law was imposed by Beijing last year. At least 53 people were arrested, police said, for the crime of, quote, subverting state power. Among the 53, six were arrested for organizing and planning a primary election held last July, and the remaining 47 were arrested uh, owing to their participation in the event, uh, which was designed to thin the field of pro-democracy candidates ahead of legislative elections in September. Tammy, let's start with you on this. We've talked a lot about the situation and the crackdowns in Hong Kong. This has obviously been the biggest uh, and it drew an immediate response from Tony Blinken, who Joe Biden has tapped as his secretary of state. What did he say and how is this now shaping up for the Biden administration, this China relationship and the situation in Hong Kong uh, for day one of the new administration? Yeah, so Secretary of State designate Tony Blinken tweeted pretty quickly after the news of the arrests broke. He said, the sweeping arrests of pro-democracy demonstrators are an assault on those bravely advocating for universal rights. The Biden-Harris administration will stand with the people of Hong Kong and against Beijing's crackdown on democracy. Now, in and of itself, I don't think that this tweet is either surprising or necessarily that significant. Both Blinken and National Security Advisor designate Jake Sullivan have tweeted commenting on other human rights situations in Egypt, in Uganda, and so on over the last several weeks. But this is one, I think, that touches on a broader debate that exists even within the democratic foreign policy establishment. And there are a lot of people who are kind of 
trying to read the tea leaves on which way the Biden administration is going to lean on China towards seeing China more as a strategic adversary that we have to orient, you know, a lot of our grand strategy around competing with China militarily and blocking their influence in other regions of the world like Africa or the Middle East, or seeing China as a competitor, as a rising, you know, great power that is pushing us in a lot of different areas, but that we can compete with and even cooperate with in other areas. And indeed, you know, when it gets to issues like climate or pandemics, it's hard to imagine being successful globally on these issues without some degree of Chinese cooperation. So how is the Biden administration going to navigate that? Doing something like this in Hong Kong is a provocative move by the Chinese. They know it's going to induce criticism. Does it, you know, more broadly frame the way the incoming team is thinking about China? And then I have to put this together with the report that came out, I think, yesterday or the day before that Kurt Campbell is going to have a senior role working Asia policy in the Biden White House. Kurt Campbell was assistant secretary for Asia in the State Department under President Obama. And he was somebody who, you know, really took this work with them on some some stuff, push them on other stuff attitude. So he, you know, got their cooperation on Iran sanctions, but pushed them on currency and human rights and worked very closely with Secretary Clinton in doing that. So I think it's going to be interesting. There are definitely some China hawks in the Democratic Party, especially on Capitol Hill, who are going to want to see them do more. Susan. Yeah, I think one sort of interesting question to see how it plays out is to what extent will the arrest of an American lawyer prove to be uh, sort of a critical point in all of this? Because uh, I think it makes a, a response and, and an immediate sort of um, insensitive diplomatic response uh, higher stakes um, for the U.S. government. It in some ways, um, I, I think, compels a strong response, but also makes it um, a dramatically more delicate of a situation. Uh, one that there would be an American arrested, you know, I think means I think it makes it um, a more uh, egregious act of, of aggression from the U.S. perspective. Um, but uh, certainly this is not the only American detained uh, by the Chinese. Um, and so although not exclusively under this new national security law. And so um, as we talked about on this podcast before, you know, the new trend towards essentially hostage taking, you know, that, that um, the Iranians kind of pioneered and, and the Chinese have engaged in with increasing frequency um, as of late, uh, not wanting to be dragged into that cycle and, you know, sort of the, the precise implications of that. So it'll be interesting to see how the United States talks about that feature of it. It'll also be interesting to see whether or not um, China backs off of that pretty quickly and, and very quickly releases, you know, one individual, which is not to say that it um, uh, in any way, you know, softens its position or, or somehow becomes tolerable. Um, but I do think is a, a little bit of an indication of how how um, direct and strong of a confrontation they want to have over this particular issue. I think the Chinese have made pretty clear that they are willing to be very confrontational over Hong Kong. And, you know, all of these issues where, I guess with the possible exception of Taiwan, where they, they play a kind of practical politics with the United States on, you know, Hong Kong, Tibet, Xinjiang, they really do take the view that they will do whatever the fuck they want to do 
and the rest of the world can can kind of eat it. And I think one of the things that we've seen over the last couple of years, and particularly over the last five, six months, is just that they actually do want to dismantle the self-governing aspects of Hong Kong, except perhaps in its kind of most formal way. And they believe the rest of the world doesn't have the guts to confront them about it. And I think they're probably right. At the end of the day, I don't think we are under a Trump administration or under a Biden administration, we are going to, you know, use the leverage that we have, which isn't all that much. And the British clearly aren't. And so I think there's a, you know, this is one of those situations where they correctly perceived that they could get away with, you know, just completely changing the uh, governing landscape. And they did it. And the rest of the world kind of clucked and their power politics is kind of wins. And I, I, I can't imagine what a Biden administration is going to do. That's going to be kind of material, except they won't sort of huff and puff and sound quite as stupid as Mike Pompeo. But I I'd like, what are they going to do? That's meaningfully going to change Chinese incentives in Hong Kong. This is kind of at the center of a really interesting article in The Atlantic, written by Thomas Wright at Brookings, titled The Risk of John Kerry Following His Own China Policy. And the premise here is that uh, John Kerry, obviously the former senator and secretary of state and Democratic presidential nominee, has been given this very broad portfolio on climate change. Uh, he'll be, I think, a member of the National Security Council in that capacity. So it's a really senior job. Uh, and he sees China as essential to a climate deal, which I think, frankly, a lot of people would agree with him on that, uh, given the, the amount of pollutants uh, that China produces. But there's a question of whether or not that is going to put him or that policy will be at odds with having to take a harder stance, Tammy, on you know China vis-a-vis -vis its human rights record and the very things that we're talking about. So, you know, unpack this a little bit. I mean, is there a fundamental tension that Wright is putting his finger on here that the Biden administration is going to have to deal with this possible trade-off between climate change and climate security and human rights and democracy in the most important, arguably uh, growing country in the world, certainly our most uh, important strategic uh, adversary. So I, I, Shane, there are absolutely trade-offs. I, I think they're not even restricted to climate on the one hand and democracy and human rights on the other. I think there are a whole set of issues related to Chinese behavior, both domestically regionally in terms of their intimidation of Taiwan and they're trying to grab territory in the South China Sea and, you know, the games they've been playing with Australia. And then globally, you know, the, the Belt and Road Initiative and the predatory lending that they've been doing to developing countries, all of that stuff is on the table. If climate is your primary concern, then you're going to be willing to trade it all away. And I think, you know, look, there is a lot of power in appointing a global climate czar and charging him with, you know, working on this every day and having someone of such stature who's got such a personal relationship with the president. The flip side of that is 
this guy was chairman of the Foreign Relations Committee and Secretary of State. He knows every foreign leader. He has his own ideas about every American relationship. And so how can his work be integrated with the other things the United States is doing? How can we surface those trade-offs, debate them in the Biden administration, and let the president resolve them? So I think it's a process challenge, and I think it's also a challenge for Kerry of self-restraint. And I would say looking at Kerry's history, that's not a quality I often ascribe to him. All right. So we'll take a little bit of a pause here just to note for listeners, um, by the time you hear this, this will be old news to you. Uh, but there is apparently an armed standoff inside the Capitol building. There were pictures being shown on TV of, I guess they look like guards inside the House chamber. They appeared to have pistols drawn aiming at a door. I couldn't tell if they were trying to prevent people from entering Ben just saw reports of uh, photos of a woman being removed from the Capitol building covered in blood. It appeared an EMT was doing chest compressions. We don't know right now, obviously, what's going on. Uh, I'm not trying to bring you guys the news here, but we wanted to take note of this since we spent some time talking on it uh, at the top of the podcast and to let you know that um, we're watching it too. And you know, we'll try and figure out, like everyone else, what this means but I didn't want to let the moment pass uh, without at least acknowledging this just extraordinary site that is extremely scary, <clears throat> uh, extremely upsetting, and uh, just something I thought think none of us ever imagined we would see. I'm looking at pictures now of apparently a protester who breached the Senate floor and is sitting in the seat where Mike Pence was presiding over the Senate. By the way, a lot of people have been asking me recently about what constitutes sedition in the United States. This is uh, actually almost a textbook yeah. case uh, involving both uh, violence and the seizing of the interference with the functioning of the government of the United States, the uh, holding of government uh, properties and buildings. This is your uh, uh, seditious conspiracy. Yeah. 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 And look, in the immediate moment, I think we only have to think about how to resolve this particular situation without more people getting hurt. The long term damage this does to American interests around the world, to our ability to um, hold our democracy out as a functional model um, like this, uh, the damage that's done here um, is not just about sort of the extent to which, um, uh, you know, whatever happens in the next couple hours. Um, it, this is a, a long term wound to this country. Yeah. Let me just double footstomp that too, Susan. I'm looking at these pictures right now, and you would be forgiven if you did not recognize the building that they were on as the U.S. Capitol and they weren't waving American flags of thinking that you were seeing something in a banana republic. You were you would be looking at a country whose government is falling apart. This is, uh, it's astonishing. And you're absolutely right. I mean, I, ho I hope that security can be maintained here and these people can be pushed out and some kind of regular order brought back. But these are images that um, <laughs> these will last our lifetime. The world is watching what's happening here, just like we are. So, you know, we talked a lot over the last four years about what would it take for Republicans finally to break from Trump. And, you know, for a very few of them over the last few weeks, Trump's refusal to respect the election outcome for Mitch McConnell today, I suppose, in his speech on the Senate floor. But, you know, now watching as 
folks like Ted Cruz and the House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy um, say this violence is wrong, you know, and also say, thank God the Capitol Police just saved my life. One wonders if the only thing that might eventually get these guys to turn away from the path that they have helped set events on is um, that their own skins are at stake here. Literally, like not their electoral prospects, literally their lives are being risked by their own supporters right now. That's right. That's right. All right. Well, um, let's just press on here and uh, maybe we'll do a little bit of a shorter third segment and keep an eye on the news. Um, But we want to talk a little bit about uh, the extraordinary uh, runoff elections in Georgia that occurred on Tuesday, uh, which uh, it has been called uh, that Raphael Warnock has won his seat in the Senate and will now go representing Georgia uh, the first African-American, I believe, from the state of Georgia, if I have that right. So pretty historic, pretty amazing. Uh, and while it hasn't been called, it does look like John Ossoff has narrowly won his race as well, so that Georgia is going to be sending two Democratic senators uh, now to the new Congress, which means you will have Democratic control of the Senate. Uh, it'll be 50-50 between Republicans and Democrats, and Vice President-elect, uh, soon to be inaugurated, Kamala Harris, will be the tie-breaking vote in her capacity as president of the Senate. So, Susan, this changes a lot for the Biden administration incoming. Um, One of the immediate effects, obviously, being it will be much easier to get through his cabinet picks, including those who might have been controversial. I mean, for instance, Neera Tandon as OMB director. Some people were questioning whether Republicans uh, who were uh, still upset about some of her sharp tweets <laughs> might decide to stage uh, an opposition there. Biden will now, presumably, as long as his caucus holds together, have the votes to get people through. So talk about that and, and also take note of the fact that he's announced today uh, that Merrick Garland will be his pick for attorney general and Lisa Monaco will be his deputy at the Justice Department. Yeah, so there's um, a lot to unpack. Um, you know, the the idea that we have only had 10 African-American senators in the history of the United States Senate is um, just a, a fact that continues to be astounding every time we see it. And I do think that there's something, um, uh, even as we see all of this ugliness unfold, the idea that the first African-American uh, senator from Georgia is the, you know, a, a preacher from Ebenezer Baptist Church, Martin Luther King's church, um, that he uh, was elected to the United States Senate after a hideously racist spear campaign against him, um, that he was elected by African Americans in Georgia who sort of once again are coming to sort of be the uh, last great defense of democracy. And that's like a really resonant moment. I would encourage people to um, to go and watch his, uh, his victory speech. Um, um, it was a, a really moving uh, thing and um, and really hopeful in this moment, sort of talking about kind of only in America could his story and the story of his family's story um, and the arc of their their history sort of arriving at that moment, that that's only would only be possible here. And so even as we look at sort of all this ugliness, um, thinking about sort of the the values and then the goodness and sort of possibilities here, I, I think that's just a really bright note. Um, in terms of the immediate implications for national security, um, this is going to be really 
complicated. So a 50-50 split is going to require the two sides enter into a power sharing agreement um, uh, that's occurred in the past in, in 2001. Um, you know, the political circumstances are pretty different now than they were back then. Um, and so what exactly that's going to look like. Um, certainly, it clears the way on lots of confirmations. I think there's no chance Merrick Garland would have been the attorney general pick uh, had uh, Democrats not won both seats in Georgia, mostly because uh, I think there was too much concern that Mitch McConnell would just be completely obstructionist on Garland's D.C. circuit seat. Uh, so that does uh, it doesn't just clear the way for immediate confirmation. Um, it also clears the way for, I think, really good picks. Um, I, I think Merrick Garland is is a sort of an inspired choice for the Justice Department. There is going to be a tremendous amount of work to do, just re the restoration project. Um, the next attorney general is going to have to prosecute the people who are doing this in the United States Capitol right now. He's going to have to do that in a way that makes clear that it's about upholding the rule of law um, and holding people accountable. It's not about a political witch hunt. Um, he's going to have to tackle these really, really sensitive issues. And Garland is almost uniquely well positioned for this. Um, huge amounts of credibility, um, you know, sort of within the department, knows the Department of Justice really well, cares about it, um, has good uh, bipartisan sort of credibility and credentials, someone who's going to be able to establish, uh, I think, a real independent oversight rapport with Congress um, at a moment in which um, we need an AG who's going to need to engage with Congress in good faith. And um, I think it's easy to think about sort of restoring norms um, when we just think about sort of going back to business as usual. The part that this is going to get really, really painful is when uh, members of the Biden administration have to adhere to norms to their detriment, essentially, in ways that are politically inconvenient. Um, that sort of rebuilding institutional credibility means rebuilding institutional credibility with Republicans um, and engaging in good faith with Republicans, even whenever they're not willing to do so. And um, I, I think Garland is sort of a, a really unusual person in sort of having the stature to do that. Um, I, you know, we'll see how um, I think some progressives are, are a little bit nervous about sort of where he might, what his policy instincts might be. Um, I would say it's really hard to generalize from um, how someone uh, has ruled on the bench to what their policy instincts are like. Um, and Garland is a really, really good judge. When they talk about judges that just call balls and strikes and right and um, uh, you know are, are not activists, I mean Garland is the prototypical right, the sort of the ideal example of someone who really, really rigorously applies the law as he understands it. And so um, I, I think people, um, I don't, I don't, uh, I don't know, but I would imagine that people might be really pleasantly surprised, um, or at least surprised, maybe negatively surprised by, by what his policy instincts are like. Uh, likewise, I, I think Lisa Monaco is a really, really excellent choice. Um, you know, so I, I think this is um, uh, just a good day all around to be hopeful. Um, that said, these people have... Like, I think one of the hardest jobs in the U.S. government over the next six months, apart from those who have to get COVID vaccines in people's arms... So that so yeah, that th those are you know the, the the plate for the incoming AG and the Justice Department is going to be quite full. Ben, what are other things that having democratic control allows Biden to do? I mean, there's obviously I mean legislation, but when we talk about national security and think about you know foreign policy, these are traditionally things that are the domain of executive authority and don't necessarily you know require. No congressional approval, and we don't really have congressional votes to go to war anymore. Although, you know, conceivably there could be a new AUMF. But what do you think of as the things that where the road is going to be smoother for Biden 
that he has control of both chambers or that the Democrats. Let's start with a negative one. He will not be being uh, harassed with oversight from the day he shows up. And, you know, there is an immense difference between Lindsey Graham or Chuck Grassley uh, and Ron Johnson being committee chair with a new administration the big difference starts with nominees as you pointed out but it continues you know there isn't going to be more investigations of the FBI's conduct during 2016 right there isn't going to be more demands by committees holding things up demanding special prosecutors to look at Hunter Biden and all of that i think you could reasonably expect to have happened under uh, Republican leadership and just change the names of all the committee chair and you don't have that anymore. So that's the first thing. The second thing is uh, there are a series of pieces of legislation that in no other time would have been held up that have been held up, uh, starting with FISA reauthorization on, on a series of points. I think with Democratic control over both houses of Congress, that passes. And I think, you know, you're not going to have a problem next year with the NDAA, although you probably wouldn't have had one. I mean, this wasn't a congressional problem. It was a Trump problem. But I think you can imagine a whole lot of just day-to-day business of government stuff functioning much more smoothly. Now, of course, the flip side of that is, you know, that's precisely what Democrats complained about in the first couple of years of the Trump administration, right, was that there was no check, right? Things operate with less friction when you have a united government. They also operate with, with you know, less accountability and less oversight. Uh, so, look, I think a lot of things will be smooth. And the fundamental question that Democrats on the Biden administration will face is getting to cloture on things that are not reconciliation and budget related. And that's a very different problem than control of the agenda, which is the problem that Democrats have faced in the Senate for a, you know quite a number of years now. I do think it's worth noting that on a lot of national security issues, it's not a clear partisan line where controlling the Senate is going to allow Democrats to do things. If you're talking about debates over national security tools, like surveillance tools, for example, you're going to have a lot of defections from the Democratic Party, and you're going to have people on the Republican side that will vote for it and people on the Republican side who won't vote for it. If you're talking about China, as as we talked about earlier in the show, um, you've got China hawks in both parties. You've got people who want to engage with China in both parties. You know, in other words, I don't think that on foreign policy and national security issues, you're going to be able to have this sort of unified front. And in fact, it's tempting if you're Joe Biden and you're going in looking for ways to cooperate with Republicans and not always be in total war, it's going to be really tempting to find some issues where you know you can get Republican votes. And I think national security issues are more likely to to be on that list. So I would expect to see attempts at bipartisanship from the White House that then get undercut by uh, senators on the Democratic left. All right. Let's move on to object lessons. Uh, Tam, you want to go first? (laughs) Sure. 
Well, my object lesson, oh my God, you know, we could have so many object lessons from this week's events, but my object lesson has nothing to do with the fact that today is January 6th. Uh, my object lesson is the new CIA logo. Oh. Listeners, have you seen the new CIA logo? Susan, Shane, Ben, have you seen I've it? I've seen it. Oh, sure. I have. Yeah. I've seen it. So it is, I think, without question, the lamest federal agency logo I've ever seen. And I'm including here Space Force because Space Force at least has a cultural reference point in Star Trek, whereas this literally looks like if you took some Microsoft Word, you know, interesting foam marble background template and typed CIA, CIA, CIA on it, that's what you would get. You would get this logo. So I just want to make sure that everybody has a chance to appreciate the lack of graphic design skills in the Central Intelligence Agency. (laughs) I like that they wrote it over and over again, right? Like the need to say the name. We're not hiding. We're really the CIA. (laughs) It's also like it's not quite in Helvetica. But it's like sort of close to that, just like, you know, like, I mean, people love and hate Helvetica, but like, it is like the basic bitch of fonts. It really is. <laughs> and it's like, I mean, and it's fine. And it like works great on a New York subway. Once again, Shane. No, no, it's okay. That's all right. No, that's, I don't think that counts. I don't think that counts. You could say uh, bitch oh, on TV so now. Sure you can. I, my friend Olivia said the S word on TV last night. It's fine. It's fine. It's cool. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it, yeah right okay that's the bad word now but no it really is it's just like you look at it and you're like wait really it doesn't even look like in a government agency it, it honestly it looks like what somebody who's making a movie about the cia and never actually looked at the cia logo or read a book about the cia would think like yeah that's like the logo on the wall make it all black <laughs> like <wavy laughs> and shit just you know <laughs> Make it so you can't identify it from far away. God, it's real bad. Uh, Susan, why don't you go next? Um, so my object lesson is also completely unrelated to everything that is going on right now. Um, but God. this weekend, I accidentally rented an industrial-sized carpet cleaner. You may be asking how someone accidentally rents an industrial-sized carpet cleaner. I thought I was renting like a Bissell, you know, just like a little spot cleaner to clean like a spot out of our couch that my children, of course, had destroyed. And I should have known when they told me they would meet me out front with a truck and like a large truck pulls up, which I'm like, okay. Um, So I will send you guys the picture. Ben has the picture because I sent it to him at the time. I don't know if you can see this. It's like- Oh, it's big. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's like, it's the real deal. Um, So at first I was like, oh, shit, what am I going to do with this um, industrial size carpet cleaner? But then, guys, I started using it and it is the calmest I have ever felt. I have steam cleaned. If it is a fabric surface. Can you send it to the rioters and just walk over to the Capitol? I will steam clean anything. All of our mattresses, like this old like chair in the basement that we're throwing in the garbage, I steam cleaned it anyway. The House and Senate chamber are going to need a good workover so, like, when this the cathartic experience of deep cleaning this stuff using like a little hose. 
is just wow. I highly recommend it to people who share like my very specific combination of crazy. It was in a like otherwise pretty stressful week, just like a very calming point. And I already returned it. And had I not returned it, I would be steam cleaning my way through this right now. And the fruits of my labor survived exactly 15 hours until the two-year-old, I will also show you a picture, found a green marker and announced that she was, quote, baby Yoda. Um, oh, for those listening, oh, I am showing a picture of a small child. baby Yoda? <laughs> Covered green in green hands. marker um, that also got I on some freshly cleaned furniture. So free two-year-old wow. for anyone who wants her. Free to a good home. Does she come with the steam cleaner? Yes. You, you're gonna, okay. you know what? You're going to need one. So maybe don't rent. Just buy. Purchase your sure. own steam cleaner. You'll be good to go. Um, I will go next on objects. Um, so my object is, uh, I think I have mentioned this film before, but it is... Uh, it's now out in the world and uh, either streaming or it's on demand. But uh, Brian Fogel's documentary, uh, The Dissident, which is a tremendous film and piece of investigative journalism. He found it's about the murder of Jamal Khashoggi uh, inside the Saudi consulate, of course, in Turkey, uh, a story that I covered uh, extensively. Uh, I make an appearance or two in the film. Uh, David Ignatius from The Post shows up there as well. But principally, it is told through the story of Jamal, through footage, through people who knew him, uh, who loved him. And it is a thrilling documentary. It's not just a, a portrait of Ryan Khashoggi. But fabulous. He's terrific. Yeah, if you saw Icarus, I mean, it's 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 kind of it's the same sort of feeling of with it's a little bit different with where with Icarus, you know, Brian set out to make one film about doping, right, in cycling, and then ends up making this explosive investigation into the Russian doping program. But it has that kind of same uh, sensibility of the investigative spirit that drives forward the narrative, but also just the really intense, deep interest in the subject. And no surprise, he threw himself entirely into. Jamal's life and, and really brings him to life, but also just this amazing exploration of the Saudis and their social media networks and the propaganda networks that they've uh, managed to uh, to create. So uh, highly recommend it. Check it out. The Dissident, uh, you can find it online. Uh, I can't exactly tell you where to stream it at the moment, but uh, he has a website and uh, just Google it. It's getting a lot of play and you should be able to find it. Check it out. Ben, wrap us up. So uh, my object lesson, I always feel weird when my object lesson is a person, but just before we were about to uh, go live, Politico reported that the new deputy national security advisor for cyber is going to be Anne Newberger, whose name will be familiar to some listeners. Anne has been one of the top officials of the National Security Agency for some years in a variety of different positions. I got to know her during the Snowden period, and she is a extremely thoughtful and energetic and talented person who I think it speaks really well of the Biden transition that they're thinking about that sort of person in, you know, traditional career roles to uh, bring to the White House in, in quite senior positions. Uh, and it suggests to me that they are thinking, they are really thinking about elevating cybersecurity issues and also 
thinking about how we can get the fucking Russians. So uh, congrats to Ann Neuberger. And, you know, after we finish clearing out the Capitol, uh, we can start going after some bad guys. Yeah, yeah so I will just um, second that. Um, I, I worked with Anne while I was at NSA. Um, she is a really, really thoughtful person. Um, she's actually the first person to hold uh, the role of basically a chief risk officer uh, role at NSA um, and sort of pioneered it. It was kind of her idea that there needed to be someone who was thinking about um, prudential restraints um, on, on sort of in the post-Snowden era, uh, thinking about uh, relationships with the private sector, thinking about um, the uh, sort of interaction between pure operational goals and larger norms, and the, you know, sort of charted that path, and, and I think was really instrumental in um, in changing a lot of people's thinking in a building where it's not easy to change people's thinking on a lot of things, um, and at a time that, that it was difficult to do so. And so, um, uh, just a really, really good decision. And I agree with Ben. I, I just think it reflects that these are um, serious people that are going to really care about this issue, care about it as sort of an integrated national security issue, and. It'll be a loss for Fort Meade, but like certainly um, sending the best and the brightest over there. Well, it'll be nice to have adults back in charge because right now I'm looking at a photo. Uh, I can't tell if he's standing at the speaker's podium or the president of the Senate of a shirtless tattooed man wearing an animal skin with buffalo horns on his head. That, uh, and his face is red, white, and blue to remind you where he's coming from. Well, shit, that does it for this week. <laughs> Rational Security <laughs> is a production of Lawfare. You can find our show page at lawfareblog.com. You will not find... I just want to know who did the music this week. <laughs> it's not even going to be that good. I mean, it's really, I mean how can it's I compete? It's that guy with, with the, the animal buffalo, buffalo skin. He's did the music. Yeah, well, you're not finding that fucking hat on Lawfare fucking store. Ugh. <laughs> I made it almost to the end, but seriously... This, this I mean, look, if you can't have an explicit rating when the motherfuckers take over the motherfucking <laughs> capital, when can you? This is now the what the actual fuck edition, isn't yeah, it's, it? No asterisks in the title. Just deal with it, Spotify, yeah. whoever the fuck yeah. you are. Oh, my God. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter at RATL Security. You can find us on Facebook. Whenever you download the podcast, please be sure to leave a rating and review <laughs> so others can join in the fun. Oh, our intrepid audio engineer this week is Zachary Frank. The show is produced and edited by Jen Patia Howell. Music this week, I don't know. This just came to me. I'm not sure you're going to like it. It's uh, Mike Pence standing shirtless and doing a spoken word version of The Doors, The End. (laughs) (laughs) That's actually quite good. And that was before I saw the shirtless man standing where I think Mike Pence was just standing a minute ago. Yeah, well, I I think that's, I think Mike Pence as, as a sort of fundamentalist Jim Morrison there's something to it. And when he gets to the line about mother, things get freaky. As if I was not having enough setting enough day, Shane, you had to put the image of a shirtless Mike Pence in my brain. Damn. Enjoy you. that. Enjoy. You'll Ugh. get it. Just go listen to some Sophia Yan tunes. It'll clear it all up. It'll be great. On behalf of my good friends, Mark Coffin-Wittis, Ben Wittis, and Susan Hennessy, I'm Shane Harris. All right. Hang in there, guys. We'll see you next week. God bless America. It is next week. Bye-bye.